Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome to Add Passion and Stir. It's the podcast from Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign that shares the inspirational stories of individuals who set their sights on a problem and then use their strengths to create solutions. It's summertime, and while many of us are thinking of summer vacations and Fourth of July picnics, 22 million children in this country experience summer hunger, according to our friends and colleagues at Feeding America. If you think about how many children rely on nutrition programs through their schools, three months in the summer is a food crisis for a staggering number of children. In this very special episode of Add Passion and Stir, we're going to speak with a hunger hero who's been working on the front lines of Northeast Tennessee, feeding hungry families since 1993. They are stuck in their home or mobile home, and they just don't have access to food. So the scale of what we um, serve is about 3,000 square miles of um, uh, some of the most mountainous rural area in Northeast Tennessee. Rhonda Chafin is the executive director of the Second Harvest Food Bank of Northeast Tennessee. And every summer, she and her team log untold miles through the rural and mountainous areas to serve nutritious meals to families in need. But first... We'll hear from Lisa Davis, Senior Vice President of the No Kid Hungry Campaign at Share Our Strength, as she's in conversation with a tireless advocate for children, Representative Jim McGovern from Massachusetts. Lisa asked Congressman McGovern how he sees the state of childhood hunger in America today. Well, sadly, it's, it's, it's very prevalent. Uh, my two sisters are school teachers in Worcester. You know, so, 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 you know, kids come to school hungry and they can't focus on their lesson. And, you know, my sister's make sure they get their breakfast and their lunch, and then they can start to focus. And on Fridays, they're looking for food to bring home. Um, you know, you go to an emergency room at any hospital anywhere in this country, and they'll talk to you about senior citizens who show up in the emergency room uh, because they're taking their medicine on an empty stomach. And all of a sudden, you know, they're having a medical emergency as a result of that. Um, you have workers um, who go to work who are hungry. Uh, you have people who are jobless who are hungry Hunger is everywhere. We have, you know, close to 35 million Americans who don't know where the next meal is going to come from. As you pointed out, Lisa, there's not a congressional district in America that is hunger-free, not a city or town that is hunger-free. Uh, this is a huge issue, and it's a political condition. And by that, I mean we have the food, we have the resources, we know what to do. What we've been lacking is the political will. And, you know, what we've been trying to do, working with you at share our strength and, um, and other organizations is we're trying to develop the political will so that everybody views food as a fundamental human right. And so that our goal is not to manage hunger, but to eradicate it once and for all. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And I just want to like emphasize something you just said, that this is a really solvable problem. It's not that we lack the resources or don't know the policies, right? We, in the pandemic, I think Congress worked together really well to quickly pull a bunch of levers that helped prevent millions of people from falling into hunger and getting by. So we know what to do. We have the resources as a country, but we lack that political will. And so coming out of the pandemic, where we saw how important these programs are and we saw what could be done, how do we recreate that bipartisan spirit and help people understand the lessons and the importance because we could end hunger in a matter of months if we choose to do it as a country. Like, so what do we need to do to create that political will? So a few, a few things. I mean, Washington is a very polarized place, as everybody knows. That's no surprise. So we have a lot of work to do uh, to bring people together here. Uh, but in the meantime, um, you know, we need to work at the local and state level. Uh, we need to work directly with this administration to try to get them to uh, do what they can do, what they can do administratively. And you know, uh, Secretary Vilsack has said he wants to expand community eligibility to make uh, more uh, schools eligible. You know, for uh, free breakfast and lunch. We had this rule that forty uh, percent of the kids that attended a particular school qualified for free or reduced lunch. The federal government could come in and then assume the cost of the entire school so that it would be free for everybody. They're going to reduce that to 25%, which is huge, right? And that's helpful not only because it's going to cover more kids, but it then makes it easier for those of us, you know, at the state and local level to go to our state legislatures and our governors and say, okay, all right, now you pick up the rest. Let's make, you know, breakfast and lunch free and universal for every child in our state. 
And we're trying to do that in Massachusetts. I mean, we, they extended it for a year. We want to make it permanent, but other states have already gone ahead of us. And so we need to follow them. So that's one thing. And by doing that, I think we're also influencing people here in Washington, showing what can be done and also helping people understand the value of this. You know, I tell people all the time that that breakfast and lunch in school is every bit as important to a child's ability to learn as a textbook or a laptop. Mm -hmm. If you are hungry, you cannot concentrate. Uh, any of us who have missed a breakfast or a lunch and we're at a work meeting, we, it's, you just can't concentrate. Uh, and so we need to make sure that our kids get what, the, what they need. And we saw the benefit of that during the pandemic when we, we had universal uh, lunches and breakfasts for kids all across the country. Also have to understand we have summer months when school's not in session. And so, you know, how do we improve on that? Congress, uh, before the change in Congress, actually gave people on SNAP a bump up if they have kids during the summer months so they could afford to purchase uh, more nutritious food for their, for their families. We need, to, we need to kind of figure out ways to build on that, um, how to make summer feeding programs more accessible. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's, there's lots of things going on. The, the other thing is that this is a, a good thing is that during the pandemic, you know, as horrible as that was, we, we collaborated with local mm -hmm. partners in ways we never did before. So, you know, farmers, restaurants, you know, our schools, I mean, you know, our hospitals, I mean, we all were kind of working together to try to solve this problem. And we don't want to lose the importance or the value of collaboration and what it resulted in um, as we're coming out of the pandemic. I think that's such an important point. And, you know, summer is a bright spot when, you know, before just a few months ago, it was the hungriest time of year for so many right. kids. And only 15 out of every 100 kids that got free or reduced price meals during the school year was able to access a summer meal site. You know, they were often far away from where kids lived. It wasn't safe for kids to go alone and parents were working and couldn't drive home, pick up their kid, get them to a site, right. take them home and get back to work. But in December, really quietly, right before you all left for the holidays, you passed transformative change. You know, Every family with kids who are eligible for free or reduced price meals in K through 12 schools will get $40 per kid per month um, during the summer to make up for the meals that they would have gotten if school were in session, which is game changing. Schools that know how to reach their kids will be able to have models that meet the need of, of the communities so they can get meals to the kids instead of making the kids come to the meals. and. When these policies are implemented fully, it can end the summer hunger gap, which is just such a big accomplishment. Yeah, it's, so really it's, it's interesting, you know, um, you know, if you were to do a poll of the American people and, and ask, you know, when is hunger the worst, they'd probably say Thanksgiving or Christmas, because yeah. that's when they're used to giving. Um, and I'm glad people give, but it's the summer months, as you pointed out, uh, that are the most perilous, especially for our kids, and when hunger actually rises in this country. And so what we did in Congress uh, uh, will, will, will make a dent in that, and uh, that's a good thing. It's a great thing. And I think you, you talk about like the holidays when hunger is really top of mind for everyone. But I think um, we as advocates need to do a better job of helping people understand a number of things. I think the first is that we can't food bank our way out of hunger, and charities alone cannot and shouldn't be asked to bear as bear so much of the burden. We have programs in the U.S. that are designed to help meet people um, where they are, um, school meal programs when kids are in school, the new summer meal policies, SNAP, which is really the front line of defense against hunger for families, WIC, um, and, and senior meal programs. But we haven't done a great job as advocates of really helping everyone in the public and some of the newer members of Congress really realize how important these programs are, how they work and who they serve. And as a result, I think there are a lot of misunderstandings and it's really scary when those misunderstandings result in legislation that will do real harm. And so I think a lot about SNAP, which is really front and center right now. And I would love to hear from you a little bit about two things. One, what are the conversations in Congress about SNAP right now? And then what are the realities? Okay. And I guess a third thing, um, what can organizations like Share Strength and 
the people that we work with be doing to help um, make sure that SNAP is strengthened, not weakened? Yeah, so the conversations that are happening here in Congress are, are not particularly uplifting, let me put it to you that way. Uh, and what they're doing is that they're saying we want we want new requirements on SNAP. We want more work requirements. There are already work requirements on SNAP uh, for able-bodied adults without dependence. Uh, and they're pretty harsh and they don't work. They're terrible, but they're there. Uh, what they're doing now is they're adding more work requirements or more work requirements. And it is estimated that over a million people if, they, if these become enacted, will will lose their benefits. So a million people who now get a, a, a modest little food benefit will lose it um, if they don't qualify, uh, if they don't comply with some of these, these new requirements. And here's the deal. The majority of able-bodied adults without dependents who are on SNAP who can't work, work. They work. So let's take that falsehood off the table that some of people are just not working. They're working. The remaining people who are not working, who fall in that category, it's a complicated population. It's people with undiagnosed mental illnesses, homeless people, uh, veterans, people just graduating out of foster care. I mean, people with very complicated situations, people who live in rural areas who don't have access to transportation to get them to a place where there might be a job or a work training program. And the idea that they're focused on trying to take a food benefit away from these very vulnerable people is just plain cruel. And so we're trying to, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to educate people as to what the reality is. And one of the challenges we have in this country is, for whatever reason, beating up on poor people sometimes plays well to the cheap seats at a, where we're, you know, at, at some of these gatherings where some of the politicians go. You know, oh, you know, let's balance the budget, but I'm tired of, of, of giving benefits to people who, quite frankly, should be working. As I said, the majority of people who can work, who are on the program, actually do work. So I don't know what they're talking about. So we, 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 have, to, we have to correct their narrative so that it reflects reality, um, number one. I asked the, the chairman of the uh, Budget Committee and the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, who are so strongly in favor of this, Tell me, what is the average SNAP benefit per person per day? They had no idea. It's about $6 per person per day, $2 per person per meal. I mean, give me a break, right? I asked them if they know what, what is the average length that somebody on SNAP actually stays in the program. It's less than a year on average. They had no idea. So we, we need to get them the information. But for the advocacy groups and people who are listening here, what I've learned is that one of the most effective ways to advocate is telling stories. Mm -hmm. I mean, we are so inundated with numbers and facts and figures and statistics and papers. All of those things are important. We need them, right? But I think politicians have lost their ability to feel what those numbers mean. And so telling the real stories about what the real life impacts of somebody losing their food benefit means, you know, um, you know, just as, telling a real story about a child who has benefited from one of the summer feeding programs, what that means and what it would mean to them if they didn't have access to that. So telling stories, real life stories, I think can move people and members of Congress, although sometimes it doesn't seem that way, are human beings and they can be moved by human stories. And if we can't convince them with the facts, we have to tell them the stories. I think that's so important. And I've heard you say many times that there is no pro-hunger caucus in Congress. Um, and so I do think helping people understand what hunger looks like and how it's impacting their communities is important. And, and I tell people as well, uh, Lisa, that you know, even if you're not moved by the human aspect of this and all you care about is the bottom line, you should join this effort with all of us because if we make sure people have access to good nutrition, it is cheaper yes. in the long run. I mean, we, we, we save in avoidable healthcare costs. Kids learn better in school. Workers are more productive in the workplace. This, this is like win, 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 win for everybody. So yeah. the idea that somehow where we, we, you know, they have kind of stigmatized a program that is food. I mean, you can't buy anything with SNAP other than food. I can't go and buy a new car. I can't go and buy a flat screen TV. I can only buy food. And the benefit, as I mentioned, is very, 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 in my opinion, too modest. I mean, the deal is 
people are on it because they need to be on it. They need it to be able to put food on the table for themselves and their families. It's that simple. Right. And there's, you know, there's so many families that are struggling. We did some polling a few months ago and talked to parents um, with kids in K through 12 education. And what we found is that, you know, 68% of parents with incomes under at or under $47,000 a year reported that they were having a harder time feeding their kids this year than they had, right. you know, in, in previous years, because Childcare, if you can get it, is exorbitantly expensive. It costs more than tuition at an in-state college in many states. Housing costs have soared, food prices, um, and wages aren't keeping up. You know, when kids don't get the nutrition that they need, they don't grow up as healthy. Their brains don't develop as well. They don't do as well in school. They're less likely to graduate. It impacts the trajectory of their entire life. And the mental and physical impacts on, on parents and on seniors are profound. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, we're trying to get the Congressional Budget Office that scores all of our bills to start understanding the savings that could be had by promoting better nutrition and promoting some of these food programs. Uh, and we, 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 you know, they just don't have the research or the capacity, but we're getting, we're trying to get them to that point, and that may help a, a little bit. There are some things you can live without. Food is not one of them. And um, if you want kids to grow up healthy and to be healthy adults, we need to make sure they have access to good nutrition. Um, and I, I'm, as I said before, I mean, I believe that food is, is a fundamental human right for every single person in this country and, and in this, on this planet. And, you know, that it has become such a polarizing topic here in Washington um, is really disappointing to me. This is the right thing to do. This is where we need to focus. I mean, and, and you know, it helps kids learn in school. Food is medicine, we, right? We, mm -hmm. we need to make the connections with our medical institutions and um, you know, uh, food is love, food is joy, food is community building. We're learning how some of these initiatives, whether it's community gardens or whether it's, uh, you know, uh, community farmers markets are, are, are bringing communities together. And that's a good thing, right? We all, we should celebrate that. We should want more of that. Um, because at the end of the day, we're strengthening our communities and we are eradicating hunger. If we get it right, you know what? There are so many other benefits associated with it that, I mean, it's just, it will make our country stronger and better. And by the way, a model for the rest of the world. Uh, so, um, so this is important stuff. If we really were to be looking at this as how do we help people move out of poverty through work, rather than taking food assistance away, we'd be talking about how do we make sure that every working mom in America has childcare that she can afford? Right. How do we make sure that every family has stable, affordable housing, transportation, healthcare, all of the supports that families need to actually be able to get a better job and build more economic security. But that's not the conversation we're having, is it? But it gives me hope. And what I love when I have conversations with you and we, other of our friends on, on this topic, I mean, uh, we, we talk about community an awful lot. And so much of what the discussion in Washington is about is me, 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 me. What can I get from me? Not understanding that helping strengthen our community as a whole actually benefits me as well. And I think that's the, that's the mindset we have to kind of break through. And we have, to, we have to help people come to the understanding that one is this is a solvable problem, as you said. Two, you know, this is the right thing to do morally. Three, um, this is something that benefits our entire community and individuals as well. There's no downside to this. Nobody is taking advantage of anybody with this. I mean, the notion that everybody's goal in life is to be so poor that you qualify for a SNAP benefit, which on average is about $2 per person per meal, so you can go into a supermarket with an EBT card to be judged by somebody who's standing behind you is just ridiculous. I mean, this is not what people people go on the benefit because they need the support because they love their families they love their kids they want to make sure their kids have adequate nutrition but but we can do this and um, and we're making some progress we had this White House conference on on hunger nutrition and health which was great right and we brought some people together who had never been in a room together before we get the private sector sitting down in a room to, with with advocates and nonprofits and, and the government. 
And we're seeing that in some you know, uh, industries, in some areas in the private sector, their financial interests actually align with what's good for the public. You know, we're learning about that now in the area of healthcare, where food prescriptions and medically tailored meals actually might be might be in the interest of insurance companies to cover because it will shorten hospital stays and make sure people don't get readmitted. So there, there's some stuff happening here that we just need to build on. But we can do this. We have to do this. And I will say that we have a short window of opportunity. I look at my life because the way we live in Congress, it's two-year intervals. We now have another year and a half. I, I know what we're dealing with for the next year and a half. I don't know what happens following that. I hope only good things, but we don't know. We have to seize the moment. We just don't have the luxury to say, oh, we'll deal with it over the next 10 years. Oh, we'll deal with it in five years. Or We got to do it now. It has to be, the, it's, it's the urgency of now that we have to be focused on. I couldn't agree more. I think, um, and we have to be focused on both the short and the long term, right? On the short term, preventing harmful changes right. to SNAP. And over the longer term, really educating elected officials at every level of government about hunger and the solutions and why these programs are better so that we can stop playing defense and start building programs that are accessible to everyone. I think a lot about you know, the number of families that are food insecure versus the number of families that are accessing SNAP or the number of families that might be accessing school meals but not SNAP or WIC. And when you're trying to navigate the system as like a single working mom with little kids who's exhausted and doesn't have transportation, having to figure out the challenging and Byzantine rules for one program, then going to a different place and figuring out the rules for another program. It's like, I don't think I could do it. And so how do we leverage all of these advances in technology, the private sector interest in innovation to make the system easier to navigate um, and and more consumer friendly? Well, I mean, one, in terms of the governmental programs, I mean, it seems to me that that is something that is a governmental responsibility and we ought to, you know, we, we big believers in community eligibility. It ought to be one-stop shopping, and you qualify for what you qualify for, right? And you shouldn't have to be up to go to 100 different places to figure it out. Right. Or I have to do a research, a, long re- a bunch of research to figure out what am I eligible for, or what, you, what, you, what even are the programs out there. So we ought, we ought to be able to do that better. Um, and, um, and I, you know, like I said, I, I think that, um, you know, this is an opportunity uh, again, in the aftermath of the White House conference, to have those more holistic conversations to connect the dots, so that we're reaching more people. I mean, I learned about a lot of things um, in that conference and leading up to the conference of of examples of really in- innovative local mm-hmm. community initiatives that are combating hunger that really should be scaled up. Uh, uh, you know, so that um, more communities, more states, are taking advantage of it, and we need to figure all of that out. But, but we, 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 this is, this is the moment. This is the window of opportunity, again, in the aftermath of this White House conference, where we can move things. And so if people want to be impatient, now's the time to be impatient. Now's the time to, you know, draw lines in the sand, you know, and, and again, this should not be a Democratic or Republican issue. It used to not be. For whatever reason, it's becoming that. I don't, I don't, I think it's a, I, I don't know who's be behind this, but we have nothing, by the way, to be defensive about. So we should not be on the defensive. We should be on the offense. It is they who want to cut these benefits, who want to make it more difficult for people who should be on the defense. Look, you know, if you ever met a hungry child, it breaks your heart. And you have and I have, I mean, in school settings, on playgrounds and parks. And it's like it, this is happening in this country. It, it doesn't have to be. So we, you know, we can fix that. And this is this is the moment to fix it. We have a window of opportunity. We have some people in high positions who want to help. You know, let's do it. And in terms of the politics of this stuff, this ought to be a voting issue. I mean, this is when you consider who you're going to vote for on what, you know, local, state or federal level, one of the considerations should be this. Are you part of the effort to end hunger in America? If you're not, well, you know what? 
goodbye. I, we, we don't need you. We go, go do something else. We need people who want to want to fix this problem. And, um, you know, and I, and I look at it, and I, I, I will say this. I'm hopeful, right? I'm hopeful at the White House conference. We're doing some stuff. More stuff is happening. I, we know what, U, what USA, USDA is doing in terms of expanding community eligibility, cover more school meals. HHS is doing some stuff. I mean, lots of stuff are happening. We just need to run with it and get as much done as we can in the next year and a half. We're in a place where we know what the solutions are, right? And so thinking about how inspired we all were by your leadership of the Rules Committee, where you were able, I think, at the first time in my memory to have a holistic view of hunger across all of the committees, across the private sector, the nonprofit sector, government programs, and doing that by bringing in the voice and the perspective of people who were facing hunger. Look, people with lived experience, these voices are not just important, they're essential, right? I mean, I, 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 I sometimes think I come up with good ideas you know, that makes sense to me in my brain. But then when I, you know, start talking to people who I think I'm helping, they'll tell me, well, this is what's wrong with it. This is we need to listen to people who are experiencing this, who are going through this difficulty, who can tell us what works and what doesn't work, what would be helpful and what wouldn't be helpful. And so, you know, you know, when we did hearings in the rules committee uh, over the last couple of years, we, we brought a lot of people with lived experiences who talked to us about everything you know, from hunger on college campuses, we had students to hunger amongst our veterans to, you know, uh, hunger amongst children. I mean, you name the, the topic, we, 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 we took it on. And it was, you know, and I think for the people on the rules committee who sat through those hearings, including a lot of Republicans, it was eye opening, mm-hmm. you know, and it was it was moving It made a difference. Um, and we just need to continue that and we need to bring people up to the hill, we need to bring people to the state house. And we, 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 need to, we need to continue this. Um, you know, during the hearing on their bill to cut SNAP and put more work requirements in place, the chairman of the uh, uh, budget committee said, well, you know, these are difficult times. And this is one of the reasons why we have churches. Um, because, you know, we may, not, we may have to rely on them more to deal with this issue. And I didn't know whether to kind of laugh or cry when he said that because you know, you have talked to countless faith-based organizations, so have I, food banks, churches, you, n- you name it, and they're all doing incredible work, and we love them for what they're doing. But they are the first people to tell us where, you know, we are at capacity. We cannot pick up the slack uh, in the battle to end hunger. This is a governmental responsibility. You need to do more. You know, the Bible tells us to feed the hungry, Right. I mean, you know, that has to be more than just saying, I'm going to pass the buck to my local church or synagogue or mosque or whatever. They'll do it. I, you know, the local food bank will do it. I don't need to do any more. No, we all have a role to play. Yeah, that was so well said. And I couldn't agree more. I mean, as you said throughout, we know what the solutions are. We know it works. We know how important it is in both the short and the long term. And we just need to make sure that there are a lot more Jim McGoverns in Congress. Well, and, and we need more Lisa's Davises and share our strengths and, and all the team that you are, you, that's, that's part of share our strength. I mean, and so many others. I mean, this is a movement of, of good people trying to do good stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm a believer that at the end of the day, good will prevail. We just want it to prevail quicker. And that's what we're, that's what, that's what we're pushing for here. Good will prevail. I love hearing Congressman McGovern say that, and I agree with his optimism, and we stand in solidarity with him, that we need to prevail quicker. I've got an exciting example of how we can prevail quicker. As schools close and we head into summer, hope's at hand for America's kids who experience hunger and count on school meals. After decades of business as usual, with participation in summer feeding programs hampered by bureaucratic inertia, we finally have some breakthroughs. One of them is pandemic EBT, passed during the pandemic, an increase in electronic benefits transfer, what we've always known as food stamps, and now they ensure that families have a little bit more cash in the summertime to take to the grocery store. This means that their kids will have more of the nutrition that they need. And the really big news 
is that Congress is making $29 billion available over the next 10 years for summer EBT and non-congregate rural feeding so that we can get meals to kids wherever they are, including hard-to-reach rural areas. Think about that. $29 billion. It's one of the largest new assistance programs for kids since child health insurance. I think of this as a departure from business as usual, and we all know that we need to do better than business as usual. Why do I say that? What's wrong with business as usual? Business as usual is having one of the highest child poverty rates in the industrialized world. Business as usual is 22 million kids eligible for school breakfast, but only half of them getting it. Business as usual is no friend to a hungry child or a struggling mom. It's no ally to a family on SNAP or a teacher trying to teach a classroom of hungry kids. Share our strength has been all about proving what we can accomplish when we depart from business as usual. That's what your support, what your interest, what your commitment enables us to achieve. But make no mistake, the gravitational pull of business as usual is as real as and strong as any law of physics. We need your help to escape it. I hope you'll get involved with Share Our Strength in our No Kid Hungry campaign. I hope you continue to listen to Add Passion and Stir and go to our website, nokidhungry.org, and find ways that you can help. So we need to continue to find innovative solutions to meeting hungry children where they are, especially over the summer months. One such innovator meeting and overcoming these challenges is Rhonda Chafin, Executive Director of the Second Harvest Food Bank of Northeast Tennessee. I recently asked Rhonda how she was faring as her summer work was gearing up. We just kicked off our summer uh, food service program yesterday. It's in full swing, and we're so excited that we're able to reach children in our region, especially children in rural areas um, that uh, are food insecure, and this is the only source of food that they may have during the summer, and we're really excited about the opportunity to help them. Well, let's come back in a minute and talk about what your summer hunger program looks like. But first, let's talk a little bit about you, Rhonda. You've been doing this work a long time. Um, I wrote a book about um, uh, what I call cathedral builders, people who work on something their whole lives, even if they won't necessarily see their work finished like the great cathedral builders. And so uh, since you've been you know, in this particular position since 1993, you certainly qualify as a cathedral builder. And I hope you take that as, a, as the compliment that it's meant. Uh, but tell us a little bit about your career, how you, how you came to be doing this, what you were doing before, that type of thing. I'm glad to be considered as a, a, a cathedral builder because um, you know, food is, is um, really very important to an individual. If we don't have food, we can't survive. And I was in the food industry and donated to the local food bank. I became very aware that individuals in our community didn't have enough food to eat, but I was also aware of all the food that was being thrown away. And uh, at that time, I felt like that I needed to get involved in this work and make a difference. And who were you working with in the food industry? Who were you working for? What was your job there? I was actually a private label food broker and I worked for a, a local retail grocer that's in our area. And so I had the opportunity right out of college to work with this local grocer and had a great opportunity. They were very good to me. And then I had the opportunity to work with a national private label um, food brokerage company in Fort Worth, Texas called MMI. And it gave me an opportunity to advance the knowledge that I had in the food industry. And that was where I learned about excess food that could be donated to food banks. So Rhonda, going from the private sector as you were to uh, the nonprofit is a pretty big uh, switch. Uh, was it an adjustment for you? And say a little bit more about what went into your thinking to make that move. It was a big adjustment, I believe, because in the um, public sector, we are um, purchasing food with an, uh, sometimes a, a very unlimited supply of resources and we're distributing that food and it is going to be sold. And in the private sector, we don't have an unlimited amount of resources and the people that we're serving don't have resources to purchase food. So it was very different, but it was very interesting to me and it really touched my heart in a way that I felt I was led to, to, to do this work. And as I grew up in a wonderful, loving Christian home, my family um, was very dedicated to helping our neighbors in need. And so this really touched my heart. And it was an area that I believe that I should be involved in. Rhonda, tell us a little bit more about 
the kind of the, the scale and the scope of the work that Second Harvest Food Bank of Northeast Tennessee does. I believe you work across eight counties and uh, have many, many partners. Uh, just give us a, a sense of the magnitude of it. The scope and scale of our food bank is very different from a food bank in a larger city, perhaps in D.C. or New York City, simply because we um, we have our own set of challenges, very uh, rural area, very difficult to reach people in uh, some of those areas, no public transportation, uh, individuals are unable to get to sites to get food. So it's not sometimes available to them unless we can reach them um, with uh, the programs that we operate, whether it be home delivery to seniors that have very limited mobility and no access to food or children uh, that have no transportation. They don't have um, anyone to get food for them and they are stuck uh, in their home or mobile home or in their location, and they just don't have access to food. So that's the challenges and the scope. The scale of what we serve is about 3,000 square miles of um, uh, some of the most mountainous rural area in Northeast Tennessee. Wow, that sounds like a really tall order. Uh, and, and, and so how do you overcome the barriers? Do you have a, like literally a fleet of vehicles that are out on the road delivering to people and, and providing services and checking on them? How, how does it work? We actually do, and, and we hosted a food bank to, to visit today at Second Harvest of Northeast Tennessee, and we, we talked to them about how many uh, mobile outreach uh, sites they serve, and they said, well, we serve 15, and they were really proud of that, and I said, that's great, and it, they were more of a metropolitan um, area food bank, and, and so they asked us how many we serve, and and with our mobiles. And we have about 75 mobile uh, sites that we serve on a monthly basis. And many of those sites uh, are senior sites. They are school uh, drive-through sites for children. They may be uh, sites where we provide fresh, nutritious produce in addition to um, food that families are already receiving. We also uh, provide uh, seniors home delivery and also we have our mobiles at some of our Section 8 housing. Um, so that's how we reach children. But, but one of the programs that we're most um, you know, proud of that's been very successful is the Summer Food Service Program. And you know, what that does uh, is, is really reach um, so many children in our rural communities. And, and so how does it work, the Summer Food Service Program? The, the Summer Food Service Program for us has been very unique over the years. We started serving children in 2009 in one of our uh, more populated towns. And what we, what we uh, I think, uh, became very aware of is that we had transportation. Children were able to get a meal. We, we were able to prepare a meal and feed children. But what we found out is children in rural areas, they didn't have access, they didn't have transportation. So that's why we started our outreach where we uh, were able to take school buses. And when I say school buses, these are school buses that have been retired and donated to Second Harvest, or we've used some of our um, uh, grant funding to purchase retired school buses. And we would take those school buses out into our more mountainous rural communities to meet the congregate meal requirement to feed children so that we would be able to receive the federal reimbursed amount of money to pay for that meal. And so we've been operating that mobile model since 2010. And we we had our first pilot in 2010. And, um, and we operated that mobile model until um, COVID uh, hit in 2020. And so for us, the uh, mobile model has worked great. We've been able to really reach uh, children in those rural areas and meet the congregate requirement because there's no meeting place, there's no gathering spot for children, there's not even a shade tree in some of the areas that we operated our buses. And, you know, we were really pleased to have at that time well over 60 sites in our rural areas to feed children. And I think during uh, that time, we served as many as 6,000 children. That was incredible. Um, at the time, um, schools were not feeding children. We still have some schools that are feeding children through the end of June, which is incredible. If, if we had uh, schools feeding children at all of our schools, then we may not have to 
to uh, operate our program like we do. It would be great if, if we had that. Uh, but when, what we do know is when, when schools close their doors, children don't have access to a meal in those rural areas. Mm. And so uh, fast forward to now, you know, things have changed, as we all know. The waiver has now expired for COVID, and um, we were back to uh, planning for the, the congregate um, requirement. The congregate requirement actually is, is a term that, that the, uh, the United States Department of Agriculture, Foods and Nutrition requires participants. We're a participant. We're a um, site um, that has completed an application um, with our um, state. And um, in our state, in each state, an organization has to administer those funds. In our state, it's the Department of Human Services. In Virginia, it may be the Department of Education. But in the state of Tennessee, it's the Department of Human Services. So in order to receive some of those federal dollars, like the free or reduced lunch program, to cover the cost of meals so that we are able to feed children, we have to operate within guidelines and standards that the, the United States Department of Agriculture, Foods and Nutrition requires, and, and also uh, the Department of Human Services. And they monitor our program and make sure that we are operating within those guidelines. And, and, and the so, guideline just says kids have to eat together, right? You can't like take the food to them, at least in the past. Uh, you, they can't take pick up the meal and take it home. They've got to they've got to sit down and eat on a congregate basis, like a congregation, you know, in 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 church. They've got to be together. That's right, and it's very similar to the school lunch program. You know, a, a child may get uh, a meal, and they have to sit down in the cafeteria and consume that meal before they uh, at a certain time that class comes in the cafeteria. They sit down, they consume their meal. And then that, and uh, they have a certain time that they finish up, and, and children have to leave if uh, they're finished or not. And same situation with us: that the food that they didn't get to eat is thrown away, and then they leave uh, during that uh, after that time frame. So we follow that same guideline as schools during the school year. And for us, um, it, it 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 really what I consider um, created many challenges. You know, this congregate requirement to most people probably sounds insane. The fact that we have to throw away food that we know kids need if they're not there on a congregate basis. Fortunately, during the pandemic, that got waived. And now that the pandemic is at the stage it's in, uh, mostly behind us, the waiver has been extended for rural feeding, the kind of, you know, the kind of situations that you're talking about. What kind of difference will that make? It's, it will make a tremendous difference for food banks that operate programs like ours in, in some of those rural areas. And it, it really gives us the advantage that we're able to uh, provide meals to children. They can take those meals home with them to their, to their home and consume that meal um, uh, for as long as they need to. If it's 30 minutes, an hour, whatever they need. Uh, to uh, finish up that meal. But we're also able to provide those meals to them. And, and we use a model that's a, that's a, a five-a-day prepackaged box with those five meals that we're able to give a child their meals for the entire week. We distribute that to that child on Monday. They get their meals and then we come back on the following Monday and provide them with their, their the following week's meals. And so it offers the opportunity for that child to get their meals efficiently and effectively. Um, we're able to just show up one day a week. And so it's less staffing, less fuel, and we're able to cover more ground in, in some of the areas where we don't have the non-congregate um, that we have to show up every day. And so it makes our job so much easier. And we're able to, um, on those days, really what I consider um, able to cover more ground and more area and uh, meet um, all the needs of the children in um, our communities that are food insecure. So it feels like Congress had an outbreak of common sense. And, you know, they, I mean, because I know that, you know, people who are doing the work you're doing uh, and people that we work with around the country and ourselves have advocated uh, for some of these flexibilities for 
many years, and it was only during the urgency of the pandemic that we had and you had the opportunity to demonstrate uh, that it that it actually works and that it's not going to be um, subject to you know fraud or abuse or or anything else. That this is a more efficient way. It's actually better for everybody, better for the kids, better for the taxpayers, better for the school systems to feed kids in this manner because the efficiencies at the end of the day uh, save time and, and money and get more kids fed. Um, and so hopefully these kind of extensions will you know, ultimately become permanent because I think Congress has learned that when somebody who's doing this work for almost uh, 30 years, Rhonda Chafin, says this is the way we need to do it. Yes, absolutely. You know, we've been talking about kids. We've been talking about seniors. Can you give us a, is there a way to characterize who who your, who benefits from your services, who your client is? I know it's, it's not a one size fits all, but how would you characterize kind of the population that's in need of this, this uh, support and why they're in need of it? You know, I, I I thought about that question and um, and I thought about um, riding the bus and because I do that every summer and I really try to um, meet the people that we serve, the children that we serve. And I've even my family members have done that so that we all that we know. I look at the conditions. I look at um, the situations. Well, I think I think these waivers are going to give us an opportunity to prove that uh, we have earned that trust. Let me ask you about an issue that doesn't have the same uh, bipartisanship behind it, and that is work requirements for uh, SNAP recipients. Uh, there was obviously a lot of uh, energy, uh, political energy spent during the discussion of uh, lifting the national debt ceiling about uh, whether work requirements should be part of that package. And uh, I think most people probably don't appreciate that there have always been work requirements, or at least in recent history, there, there's already work requirements. This legislation was uh, that is part of the national debt ceiling deal would uh, extend the age uh, that they're applicable to, to the age of 54. Um, and as you know, people have lots of, I think, misperceptions uh, and misconceptions about who is the, on SNAP. And as you and I know, many of these families, as you were just describing, already work. Uh, many of them are children, many are senior, many are, uh, have disability issues. Uh, what does this debate about work requirements look like from your perspective? We are very concerned about the work requirements, especially in rural areas when there's limited jobs. And um, so many people um, don't have transportation or they have limited transportation. Um, you know, they have to pay for fuel um, and, and other um, uh, resources to be able to, uh, to meet the requirement. And if they have children, grandparents that are raising grandchildren and they don't have custody, that's, that's particularly challenging um, that we're looking at. And then, um, you know, with, with disabilities, it's, it, it opens, a, a, you know, a, a more challenges to an individual. Um, so we are very concerned about these requirements and, um, and the burden that it will place on individuals um, that, have to, that have to work a job in order to get benefits. That sounds like an important issue for our listeners to make their voices heard with their uh, members of, of, of Congress. Uh, as we wrap up here, Rhonda, because we're running out of time, any other uh, major policy issues that you think uh, folks who care about these issues should be weighing in on? Over the years, you know, child, um, you know, hunger is 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 a, is a big um, focus of our food bank and food banks um, throughout the nation that that make up the Feeding America network. We we truly need not only a strong farm bill that's coming up, and we want to make sure that we have adequate support and funding to be able to fund uh, the emergency um, food assistance program, the TFAP program, um, the SNAP program. Uh, the Summer uh, Food Service Program, WIC. There's just so many federal nutrition programs that um, that must be funded. And quite honestly, they need to be funded at a higher area or level, excuse me, higher level. And we, we just, we want to convey that we need the support to be able to have a strong farm bill that 
supports these programs. It also supports our farmers to make sure that they um, are able to uh, receive uh, support for their crops um, and also um, uh, you know, uh, farmers that raise uh, livestock and, and and receive this support. But we want to make sure that that we have adequate support at a level that's going to make a, an impact. Um, so families are not looking to food banks for emergency food. And if we have adequate federal nutrition programs, then it, it lifts that burden on food banks so much because we don't have all the resources to be able to meet every need. Uh, sometimes it's very limited. And so we want to urge, moving forward, urge Congress to, to pass a, a strong farm bill. And that's uh, very important to our network. Rhonda, I am so grateful to have your voice as part of this conversation. We've been talking with Congressman Jim McGovern, who, of course, is a great leader on this. Uh, also, Lisa Davis from our staff, who leads our advocacy and our No Kid Hungry campaign work. And to have your perspective as somebody who's working so closely on the ground uh, with uh, thousands of, of families, with children, with seniors, with school districts, uh, really brings uh, a valuable lens to this work. So thank you so much, Rhonda, for being with us on Add Passion and Stir. Thank you so much, Billy. It's a pleasure. You've been listening to Add Passion and Stir. It's been our privilege talking with Rhonda Chafin from the Second Harvest Food Bank of Northeast Tennessee and Congressman Jim McGovern from Massachusetts, as well as my colleague at Share of Strength, Lisa Davis. Please visit us at Add Passion and Stir, and don't forget to follow us wherever you get your podcast. Share Add Passion and Stir with a friend and rate the show so that others can find it. Add Passion and Stir is produced by Paul Woody Woodle's team at District Productive with support from our team at Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign. That includes my sister Debbie Shore, Pamela Taylor, Megan Cantrell, and Kelly Griffin. We'll be back in two weeks with more stories of individuals sharing their strength to make a difference in the world. Until then, thanks so much for listening.